Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Happy Father's Day, everyone. How you guys doing? Everyone, happy Father's Day. Just kidding. Um, to those fathers out there, I believe this is just a day you guys should be honored. And um, I love that we have a, a, a God who says, when you pray, pray to me, our Father, who art in heaven, which is this intimate Abba. Um, and so we can pray our Father, this intimate, like Abba, he's the image of the perfect Father. And then he says, in heaven. So he's also transcendent, and he's different, and he's other. And so there's this really cool thing about how God is so close to us. And yet he's also this God who, like, we will never exhaust. So it doesn't matter how old you get and how wise you think you are, God is still someone who we can sit under and learn from and learn our life from and gain from. And so we have a good father, and that's why we celebrate this day. And so if you're a father in here, if you're a spiritual father, if you have a father in here, just want to honor you and just, you are uh, in many ways just trying to give a picture, an imperfect picture at that, we all are, but of a heavenly father. And so um, today's a special day for you. Um, and then for me, as I was thinking about, uh, you know, this is my first Father's Day, which is crazy. I mean, like, yeah, it is. Like, you know, he hasn't told me yet. Uh, we're having a boy, by the way. Um, so he hasn't told me Happy Father's Day yet. Jerk. Um, but um, we're excited. We're super excited for that day to come. Um, and then I just was thinking about what is, my, what is our son going to listen to growing up? For me, it was Blink-182. Anybody else? Blink-182. It's like, where are you? It's just very, very angsty, and I'm not going to keep going. It's just <laughs> very bad. Uh, but you're related to Father's Day. How do you guys deal with disappointment? Um, I, I was, I, you know, when Benji was talking about his uh, really awesome trip to London, that he was like, oh, yeah, I got to go to London. I got to meet my mentor and or my scholarly, like, person, N.T. Wright, and I got to, like, listen to him, and I got to go see all these cool things, and I was supposed to be on that trip. <laughs> so frustrating. And so what happened was is we pulled up to the airport, and, uh, and so Trisha drove us, dropped us off. I pull up to the airport, and they swipe my passport. And then he swipes it again. And then he's like, hey, do you have another ID? And I was like, yeah, you need my driver's license? Like, what's going on? And he's like, he's like no, do you have, like, another passport? And I was like, no, no, why? What's, what's wrong? He's like, oh, it's expired. And, 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 and he's, he's like, yeah, you're not going on this flight, bud. That's what he said to me. And so, uh, you know, tried to expedite a passport, couldn't do it. Benji went on the trip without me. Super, super incredible trip. So dealt with disappointment. That was absolutely my fault. But apparently this happens in my life. See, Trisha and I, um, our five-year anniversary, we went to Hawaii and, uh, and we, we had a family friend who owned like a hotel, like resort type thing. And so they were giving us like the free hotel. So we we're like, this is awesome. They booked it. We were all good to go. He sent me the confirmation. So we were solid. We flew to Hawaii for a week that we were just going to be spending for our five years. And we show up to this hotel and, and I say, hey, I'm checking in. And I say, uh, yeah, checking in for York. And they're like, oh, we can't find you. Is there another name? And I was like, oh, well, maybe it's, you know, under this, this guy's name. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't see anything. I was like, well, here's the confirmation number. They're like, oh, yeah, we canceled it. I was like, what? What? You didn't tell me? 
And they're like, yeah, yeah we canceled it because there was like there, a missed payment or something like that. It was kind of, so we ended up just canceling it. I was like, why didn't you guys tell me? Like, we, we're here in Hawaii. What are we going to do? And they're like, they're like, oh, well, we told the guy that we canceled it. Well, long story short, they had called the guy's son because it was his phone number. His son's kind of like out of commission. And so we showed up in Hawaii and there was no hotel for us. And we we're standing there, we're like, what are we going to do? Long story short, we worked it out. That one was not our fault. But we deal with disappointments in our life, right? We deal with things where we're like, man, it should have been like this. It should have, it should have worked out this way. We expected it to be like this. And sometimes it's really our fault. And other times it's not our fault at all. But, but we deal with things in our lives, disappointments. So how do you deal with disappointments? And, and so in the book of Mark, what we're talking about is, is this, this group of Christians that, that are, are, are standing or sitting in their, they're underneath uh, these, these Roman roads, they're in the catacombs and they're looking at these letters that Mark wrote to them, the Roman church, and they're like, they're like what, what are we going to do? See, we're under persecution and because of what Emperor Nero did and now the Christians are all persecuted because they think that the Christians were the ones that lit everything on fire and so they're being persecuted and they're looking around and they're saying, is this what we had expected? When we stepped into the kingdom of God and we said yes to following Jesus, is this what we had expected? And they were probably dealing with a whole bunch of disappointment. And so John Mark is writing this, and he's writing this to this church that's in the midst of disappointment. They're in the midst of this place of saying, man, who is Jesus? Is this all worth it? They're dealing with disappointment. And so as we read chapter 4, which we're going to be in, so if you have your Bibles, you guys can turn to Mark chapter 4. But as we're reading it in Mark chapter 4, you have to begin to sit in the catacombs with the early church. Really, there's actually three different audiences. There's the audience that originally heard Jesus say these words and experienced the miracles. And then there's the audience that this was written to. Um, the original audience, when John Mark penned this to the people who, who are in Rome in the catacombs. And then there's us today. And, and the Bible can never mean what it never meant. So we have to try to understand what did it mean for them. And so Mark chapter 4 Starting in verse 1, it says, Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables. And in his teachings, he said, listen, a farmer went out to seed. Now stop there. Um, Jesus' teaching was so much wit and so much authority. Like he's just so incredible that crowds are coming around him. Like, if, if you're an itinerant preacher, like, like, this would be awesome if I had crowds just coming around. He has thousands of people, so much so that he's a genius. He's like, okay, you guys can't hear me. You're way over here, way over here. I'm just going to go out a little bit. And he makes this, like, makeshift amphitheater, which is, like, this, like, really cool kind of idea that he, like, the very first, like, Greek theater, like, Jesus did it. You know, he's just in this boat, and he, he makes this makeshift amphitheater, and then he starts teaching in parables, which is fascinating, and I think it's also fascinating because the parables that he uses, they allude to things that are going on in culture around that make sense, but they also don't make sense. So you think about parables, what it means uh, is parabolon, the Greek word literally means to cast alongside. It, it means to measure up against. So it's a, it's a comparing and a contrasting. And so in the same way that, that these first disciples are in the catacombs and they're wondering, is this worth it? What Jesus is doing through the parables, he's saying, is your idea of the kingdom comparing to what you thought it was? 
And maybe your expectations of what the kingdom is, maybe your thoughts of what it means to follow Jesus, maybe your hopes for who God is and how he's going to show up in your life, maybe that doesn't align, but maybe it's not God who's off, maybe it's you. And so he teaches in parables to compare and contrast what are your expectations? How are you viewing God? How are you viewing his kingdom? And does it align with reality? You guys ever watched the cooking show Nailed It? I love that cook or any cooking show where you have amateur bakers that are like they're supposed to make something that's a model. I love the, the show Nailed It because they're like, oh, you're supposed to make this sweet cake that looks like an alligator. And then like at the very end, they have like just a, a, a big green blob, and you're like, that's cute. <laughs> Nailed it. You know, like that's what it is expectation versus reality. Like, is your expectation matching your reality? Because they would have expected, like the very first hearers of Jesus' message, as they're along the shoreline, they would have expected a kingdom that would have been explosive. They would have expected a kingdom that was going to take Rome by force because they were the oppressors. They would have expected freedom and deliverance from pain and suffering. And then if you're sitting in the catacombs, what would you be expecting? You'd be expecting a kingdom that would pull you from the catacombs and put you back on the streets. That, that would take you from this place where you're probably like, like wrapped up in cloths and put you back in warm clothes. You would expect for deliverance. And maybe us today, as we're sitting here, we might be expecting God's kingdom to come. And what that means is a little bit less anxiety, a little bit less depression, a little bit more freedom, a little bit less COVID, a little bit, like, right? We, we have expectations. And so then it comes down to, do our expectations match the reality, and so Jesus begins to teach in parables, and again and again, he says, he who has ears, let them hear. In verse 9, if you have ears to hear, let them hear. In verse 23, anyone who hears these things, let them hear. And this is kind of going back to what, what Benji talked about last week, where in uh, chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus looked around at them in anger, and he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And Benji mentioned this last week, but what, what actually angers God? It's fascinating when you, when you look at the things in the gospel where Jesus is frustrated. I, love, like, I started noticing Jesus sighs a lot. Like you just, he's just like, Ugh. Like I love that Jesus is just so real and so human. Like what are the things that frustrate the heart of Jesus? And right here we see it's, it's stubbornness of hearts. Which in the Greek, that word stubborn means unwillingness to understand. So what frustrates God is, is not, not that you don't understand. It's that the fact that you're unwilling to understand. It's, it's not that you don't get it. He's okay with people not getting it. I mean, he had disciples, Peter, like top of the list, who didn't understand it. It's not the fact that they don't understand. It's that they won't understand. And what the difference between that is, which these parables are going to highlight, but what the difference is... Is do you have a soft heart or do you have a hard heart? Is your heart calloused? Is your heart hardened? Is your heart unable for the Holy Spirit to move and shift things inside of it? Or are you palpable? Is your heart softened? Is your heart able to be moved? Do you have ears to hear? And so that's my prayer for us as a church. Is that we would come in and that we would live our lives not with hardened, calloused hearts, just thinking that we know what, that we know but that we would come in, that we live our lives with hearts that are open and able to receive and move and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is teaching these parables. He's saying, do you have soft hearts? 
And then he starts using language that they're familiar with. And so he says, a sower went out to sow seed. So he starts using this analogy of seed. And and this is what I want to highlight because this historian, Ian Pitt Watson, says it so beautifully. And he says that in history, as a historian, there have really only been two great revolutions, two things throughout history that have actually changed the course of the world forever. Now, obviously, there have been a lot of great things and a lot of bad things that are historic, but there really have been two things that have changed the course of the world, where it was like from this moment on, things are just absolutely different. He said the first was when the first person took a seed and they decided to plant it in the ground. Because up until that point, everyone was just hunter-gatherers. Like, they went out and they, they kill food, eat food. Like, that's what they did. And so they ran around. They were nomads. They were always traveling. They were chasing the hunt until this one point when someone who had seed, which would have been food for them, took that seed and decided to poke it in the ground. And, and everyone else would have been like, what are you doing? You could have eaten that. That's food. Until they started to notice after a few weeks that where that seed was planted, a sprout began to come. And ever since that moment, they realized that that one seed that went to the ground and died produced way more seeds, way more food for them to be able to eat. And so this is, this is what he's hitting on. He, he's, he's saying that from that moment, now families began to cultivate around gardening, that, that cultures came together, cities began to be made around this idea of farming, and that changed the course of the world forever. And then he says, the second great revolution was just like the first. It was when Jesus let his own creation kill him. It was when Jesus withheld all of his divine power and he laid down his life. And just like that first seed that went into the ground was buried and died and produced so much more fruit by dying, Jesus, by giving his life, produced so much more life through his death. John 12, 24 says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. And Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, while we were far from God, Christ died for us. See, our expectation of the kingdom is that it's going to be explosive. Our expectation of the kingdom is that it's going to be upward mobility, that it's going to move towards healing all the time, that it's always going to produce joy and happiness, and like it's just going to like the up and to the right kind of mentality. But Jesus talks about a kingdom that N.T. Wright says is an upside-down kingdom, where it doesn't make sense, but it kind of makes sense. That the way the kingdom grows is through death. You can imagine then as the first hearers of that, they're like, whoa, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. But then you can imagine you're sitting in the catacombs and you're experiencing death. You're around death. Literally, these are tombs. And you're looking around and, and you begin to realize that Jesus is talking about a kingdom that's like a seed that needs to die. So do we have soft hearts to receive it? So there's three parables then that Jesus gives. Three parables about a seed that comes and dies. And so there's going to be three points. Um, the three points about, us ha- uh, that, about the seed is do we have soft hearts? There will be silent nights and there will be slow beginnings. 
So the first one, um, I don't want to reteach this because I've actually taught on this parable before, but it's the parable of the four soils. And, and in, in this parable, there's a sower who we know is God, and he's, he's just sowing the seed. He's just kind of flippantly tossing seed everywhere. Now, if you're a farmer, you're not going to do that. You're going to plant seed where it's good soil, except for God doesn't discriminate. He, he just seems to be lavish with, with his gospel message, with his love. And so he's just tossing it everywhere he goes. And so it says some of the seed fell along the path, some seed fell along rocky soil, and then some seed fell along thorny soil, and eventually some seed fell along good soil. And so the path, soil, is, is, is do you have absolute hard-heartedness, right? It's talking about our hearts. And so God is sowing the seed. He's sowing his love, and some of it falls on these hard hearts or these stubborn areas of our lives that we're unwilling to hear. But then the second one is that it falls into rocky Soil, which, which not necessarily there was a bunch of rocks in the soil, but in ancient Palestine, there was a thin layer of silt, and underneath that was just a, a long bed of rock. And so it doesn't matter if you planted the seed there, the roots couldn't go down. And so at night, there'd be like a dew-like mist that would go over the ground, and it would moisten the soil. But as soon as the scorching heat came, as soon as trials in your life and difficulties come, it just wicks up all of that water, and you don't have enough of a root system to dig deep enough, and so you burn and you wither. And he's talking about, do you have a root system? Do you have rhythms in your life that help you incorporate depth so that when the scorching heat comes, when difficulties come, when life happens, do you have depth so that you can withstand life? And then the, the next one is thorny. And it's, it's, less, it's, it's more about the fact that you're sharing room in the soil with thorns and weeds. And so it's more about, do you have a divided and distracted devotion? See, Jesus is king, and here's the thing, Jesus will let us also be king. I think Chris Hilkin says this, said this a while ago. He's like, Jesus will let you sit on the throne of your life if you want him to. But Jesus isn't going to share the throne. He's not going to do like a one cheek on, one cheek off type thing. <laughs> like he, he will let you sit on the throne or he'll actually in love ask you to get off the throne. He doesn't want us to have a divided devotion, but will we be fully devoted to him? And then in verse 20, it says, others, others like seed... Um, sown on good soil, hear the word, they accept it and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what is sown. Is our heart good soil? Do we have a heart that's not divided? Do we have a heart that has depth in it? Do we have a heart that isn't hard-hearted but is able to receive? And so the first thing is, do we have soft hearts? Jesus is trying to get at this, and you can imagine then, if you're in the catacombs and you're hearing this, that is a good question. Has the bitterness of your trial caused a hardness of heart? And they're also sitting there, and they're probably like, I am not divided in my devotion. If I was divided in my devotion, I wouldn't be hiding from Rome. I am fully in God. And I believe through this, Jesus is probably telling them, keep going. Have a soft heart. Don't have a divided devotion. Keep focusing in. Keep Keep creating the depth in your life so that you can have intimacy with me so that as the scorching heat, as the oppression from Rome keeps happening, you can withstand it. And so this is an encouragement to the early church. This is an encouragement to us. And then the second thing, that there will be silent nights. Verse 26. He also said, <coughs> this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. 
All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And so now we have the second parable of the seed. And so James, James R. Edwards, he's a theologian and a commentator on this passage. And he says this, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. A more banal comparison could not be imagined. The kingdom of God should be likened to something grand and glorious, to shimmering mountain peaks, crimson sunsets, or opulence of, of potentates. What I had to look up was like, like a king or like a ruler. It's a weird word. The lusty glory of a gladiator. But Jesus likens it to seeds. The paradox of the kingdom, indeed the scandal of the incarnation, is disguised in such commonplaces. The God whom Jesus introduces will not be kept at celestial arm's length. Jesus does not tell us how high and lofty God is, but how very near and present he is. And how the routines of planting and harvesting are mundane clues to the nature and the plan of God. So already, if you're the first hearers, you're hearing this and you're on the shore, you're probably a bit confused. Because that's exactly it, where you're like, no, 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 you should be saying conquer Rome. You, you should be using like a sequoia or like a tree or like the granites of Yosemite. Like you should be saying something way big, strong and powerful. But instead you're talking about a seed and planting. They would have been confused, but then now put yourself in the catacombs and they're hearing this. Oh man, Jesus is near and commonplace. Jesus isn't a celestial arm's length away, but he's in this with me. Man, this is sweet, sweet news. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord draws near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. They would have heard this and been like, man, this is incredible news. But the other aspect of this parable, I think that we miss, is the fact that God is always working. See, we live in San Diego, um, which means that we're probably really good at controlling our lives. We're, we're probably pretty good at being able to, to, to do our thing, get our career, figure some things out. And if not, I mean, hey, we're all starting, trying to figure it out. But for the most part, we have some semblance of control in our life. But in this parable, you begin to see that, that we, we can convince ourselves of control. But as much as we try to control, God is actually the one that's producing the crop. God is the one that, that's taking the seed and bringing it to life. And it made me think of this one time. I, I go on a uh, trip with, with some of my friends. Um, we used to do it every year. And then one friend planted a church. and Another one had babies. And so we stopped the trip, as they all happen. But, um, so we were on this trip, and, and we called it Entrada Armada, which is a weird name. But we, we thought it was cool. We'd have mustaches. It was a weird like, man trip, you know, right? Um, and so we would always go river rafting. And the first time went to Tuolumne River in Yosemite. And so we were up there, and this is the first time we're all river rafting, and it's like class four rapids. And so I was pretty scared, but I was like, I'm not going to let them see I'm scared. Like, I got this, you know, trying to act tough. And so, so we, we get going, and as we're going, it's just still really mellow. Our guide starts to tell us, he's like, hey, just so you know, if you fall out, um, that's okay. Breathe when you go down, and then like when you come up, water's going to hit you in the face. That's all right. But he's like, if you fall into this one section where you see the water's coming down, and it's just, that's where the rapids are. Uh, what's happening is the water's going down, and then it's coming back up, and it's creating this washing machine effect. And so if you fall into that, don't fight it. 
Because as much as you try to fight it, as much as you try to like move your arms around because you're trying to get up for air because you're going you're gonna to freak out, as much as you want to do that, don't. Because you're going to keep yourself in the washing machine. He's like, but if that happens, what you need to do is get up into a ball and then sink down as low as you can because there's an undertow that will shoot you out. And so we're like, oh, yeah, totally, yeah, sure. None of us are going to fall out anyways. Yeah. And so, we, so we're going, and, and then and we, we get past this one rapid, and then, uh, and then our guide was like, hey, do you want to surf the rapid? Which I'm like, yeah, San Diego, I surf, let's do this. And so we, you turn around, and what you do is you put the nose of, of the raft up against, up against the rapid, and it feels like you're surfing. And so you kind of get stuck there for a little bit, and it's cool. But we turn sideways to the rapid, and next thing you know, like half of our boat fell out into the washing machine. I didn't. I was, I was like, nope, I'm not falling. I held on real tight. And so I all got out, and then everyone else kind of popped out easy except our friend Nick. And, and you just see his little yellow helmet with a GoPro on top, like kind of bobbing, <laughs> going under, coming back up, going under. And we're like, oh, he's for sure. He'll be fine. And so like, you know, five seconds go by, and you're like, he's fine. Except for when you're under like that much water, it's actually really scary. And so five seconds go by, and you're like, all right, Nick, like, come, back, come up now. 10 seconds go by and you still see his head just kind of bobbing and rotating. 15 seconds go by and we're like, he's going to die. And he had his firstborn son was like on the way. Like, like, so we're looking at, we're like, dude, Nick's going to die. We can't help him. So we're just watching this happen. 20 seconds go by. And I don't even know how, but eventually he just popped out. And so then later he began to tell the story and, and he said that while he was under that, I mean, literally his, he said, like, he's, I was thinking through all of the things. I was thinking about my wife. I was thinking about my kids. I was thinking about the fact that I'm going to die right here. And it was actually at the moment when he realized he was just too exhausted to keep fighting the current that he let go, he popped out, and then he was set free. And I think about that story because I think it's just such a beautiful picture of what God calls us to. There's so much in our life that we just try to grasp onto for control. When we're going through difficult situations, we just try to control them. And, and, and this, is, this is honestly, when we try to control things too much, it just creates even more anxiety. And then we start to ruminate about the future or the future solutions. And oftentimes when we get our mind into the future solutions, they're godless scenarios. Oh, man, this is going to happen. Oh, I can't, this catastrophic thing. Or, hey, I'm going to get out of this, but I'm doing it by my might and my strength. And we find ourselves in this cycle of trying to control. And I think a comfort right here is the fact that even when life is happening, even when we're in the rapids, even when chaos is happening, when you're in the catacombs of Roman oppression, or you're in whatever situation you're in right now, God is still working. What this is highlighting is, is the farmer puts it in, and he still doesn't see results. We're in just the fast results. I mean, I love In-N-Out. That line's not fast, but I love going through drive-thrus, right? Because we just want things now. We can have things now. And so when we don't have it immediately, we wonder if it's working, and yet God's timing isn't our timing. And so when we're sitting in the tension, there's something about a patient trust in God's loving hand and in his work. See, it's like a seed that you can't see It seems imperceptible, it seems unmoving, but it's a force of work growing, expanding, healing, restoring, and redeeming. And so to the first Christians, this was a comfort, and to us, this is a comfort. Jesus isn't far off, he's near. And then the third thing is that the kingdom has small beginnings. Go to verse 30. Again, Jesus said, 
What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Now, I've always read this parable, and I've always thought that Jesus was talking about, like, yes, like, we're going to have, Christianity is going to be pervasive, everybody's going to be a Christian. Like, I remember being in high school, and I was like, my whole entire school is going to be Christian. I remember thinking, like, yeah, we live in a Christian nation, all the nations are going to be Christian. And I thought, it, I thought that's what it meant. I thought it meant that, that oh, it's, it's going to start small, but in the end of the day, like, the entire world's going to be Christian. It's kind of what I thought, but then I started realizing that more often than not, Jesus is seeming concerned with the condition of a single person's human heart. And he seems way more concerned about the individual than the crowd. Jesus actually far too often seems to dismiss the crowds, and the crowds walk away disappointed in him because he didn't appease them, which makes me think that maybe the kingdom of God isn't meaning that we're going to have this massive nation that's Christian or a massive world that's Christian, but maybe it means that God's kingdom is going to pervade and invade every aspect of your life. So yeah, absolutely, as you follow God, as you let him invade all areas of your life, you'll go out and you'll share the good news, you'll share the love of Jesus. People will become followers of Jesus. But this isn't a promise that the entire world's going to become followers of Jesus. This is a promise that even though it seems small and imperceptible, it is powerful. And if you let it invade your life, if you have ears to hear and a soft heart, that your life can be transformed in such a way that it might have started small, but now your entire life is captivating because it looks like Jesus. See, this parable is actually more about contrast. It's about a kingdom that grows from obscurity and insignificance. See, a mustard seed, which he says is the smallest seed. It's not actually a small seed. It's just more parabolic language to say it's a small seed. He's saying that this small seed that seems insignificant and it's obscure and you don't really want to pay any attention to it, this thing that seems so small, it will grow. And again, you have to sit in the catacombs with those early Christians and as they're sitting there and they're a small group and they're they're reading this around just a lamp, hiding from Rome, and they're beginning to see that, man, God's kingdom grows from a place of insignificance and obscurity. I have hope. I mean, you can almost hear the words of Jesus be like a bomb to the fearful heart. There's hope for you. You might feel like this is just an insignificant moment. You might feel like this is an obscure moment, that no one's going to see this. But that really small seed will grow, pervade, and invade every aspect of your heart that will change Jesus' whispering hope to a heavy heart. I love that Jesus does this. And so he teaches these parables using this imagery of a seed, which would have been beautiful news to this small seed of people that are in the Roman catacombs. And it's a beautiful news to us. There are a small seed of people here in Encinitas. But Jesus isn't okay with just teaching about parables, and he lives the parables. And this is what I love about Jesus. He's not just the teacher, he's the model. He's not just the, the truth, he's the way and the life. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus. And so Jesus just says, hey, it's not, not just enough for me to teach you about it. Let me show you what it's like. And so Jesus transitions straight from teaching these crowds, like thousands of people. And then him and his disciples back away in the boat and they go to the other side of the lake. So they leave all of this prestige, all of this influence, and they back away to go to another place. And it says this, Mark 4, 35 through 41. 
That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, taking a little snoozle. The disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we drown? <clears throat> he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Why do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I love this. Jesus is just taking a snooze. I love that, that Mark has been highlighting the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. You know, he was in the beginning with God. I mean, he created all things. And so there's this divinity of God, and then he also highlights the humanity of God. Hebrews highlights that, that Jesus was without sin, but, but he was tempted in all ways, and so therefore he showed us what it's like to be human. So if we want to know how to live life, then we can look to Jesus and so Jesus is taking a nap. And, and what I think is really interesting is that he's asleep on a cushion. You're like, that's a weird detail to throw in, right? Why did you say he was on a cushion? Like, just to make me feel bad about the fact I'm sitting on wood right now? Like, what's going on? Except for, he's not just saying he was asleep on a cushion. He was asleep on the cushion. The cushion is the place where you're supposed to be steering the boat. And so what he's getting at is Jesus is asleep at the wheel, Everyone, everyone's like, dude, we're rowing. There's a storm going on, which had been super common in that place because as the cold air would have came down from Mount Hermon and mixed with the warm air of the Sea of Galilee, which was 700 feet below sea level, there were a lot of storms that would happen. And so this storm is going on and they're freaking out and they're like, Jesus, just do your job. And, and you could imagine that the people in the catacombs are sitting there probably with the same thought, Jesus, are you sleeping? We're in the midst of a storm here. We're, in the midst, we're dying by the numbers. And where are you? And Jesus is just asleep. And then they wake him up. But before they wake him up, I, I, just, I love the fact that Jesus seems to not be overwhelmed with the things that overwhelm us. I think sometimes we take these things, and of course they're overwhelming to us, but, but let's not get it twisted. Jesus isn't overwhelmed by them. We might be burdened and bogged down, and Jesus carries burdens with us, but it's not a burden to him. We might feel like we're stirred and mixed up and lost and confused, and Jesus is never stirred or mixed up or lost and confused. He's a non-anxious trust in God in the midst of the chaos. So he can snooze. He just trusts God. He's not freaking out. And so that first point is just Jesus leads from a non-anxious place of rest. And that's really good. If you're sitting in the catacombs and you're freaking out, it's good news that you look at a Savior that's our model and our guide who's non-anxious in the midst of chaos. And the next point is that Jesus listens to the sound of a voice and not the sound of a storm. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we drowned? He got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
They were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? And so Jesus rebukes the storm. The word be still is femu, which means to muzzle. He literally just muzzled the storm. He pretty much just said, shut up to the storm. And it does. It listens to him. In the eye of the storm, the disciples are panicking and they're accusing Jesus of forsaking them. In the eye of chaos, in the eye of Roman oppression, in the eye of whatever you're going through, the difficulties of your everyday life, oftentimes we can turn and just say, God, have you left me? And in this scenario, you see where they they turn and they're like, God, do you care? And so they accuse Jesus of forsaking them. And and it's so funny because Jesus isn't being woken up by the storm but he's woken up by our cries. He's not woken up by the fact that there's turmoil going on. Again, he's non-anxious. It's not freaking him out, but he absolutely listens to you. He absolutely listens to them in the midst of the storm. So they cry out to him and Jesus wakes up. He hears their cry. He's not listening to the storm. He's listening to you. And so wherever you're at, in whatever you're in, have that honesty with God and he'll listen to you. And so again, sitting in the catacombs, they're probably like, man, we're in chaos, and Jesus hears them and sees them. Jesus listens to the cries of his disciples. But then you have to start asking the question, why did Jesus leave the crowds? He was teaching thousands of people. He had all of the clout. He had all the accolades. I mean, he had had authority. People were flocking to him. And why did he leave the crowds? And it's because Jesus heard something from across the sea. It's almost as if Jesus is there teaching the crowds, and then from across the sea, he almost he heard another cry. In this scenario, he heard the disciples cry, but then he's starting to hear another cry, and he's like, I have to go there. And so the disciples, I mean, think about if you're a disciple, you drop everything to follow Jesus. You left your family business, you left your nets. You left everything that you own to follow Jesus because you saw that maybe just in Jesus there's there's a kingdom. Maybe just in Jesus there's going to be success. Maybe Jesus is going to prove something. And so you leave everything to follow Jesus. And in this moment, there are thousands of people. You're like, we've done it. We've made it. Success. Because of the numbers game, right? And it's so funny because it seems like Jesus is never really impressed by numbers. It seems like Jesus isn't really interested in fans. He's interested in followers and disciples. But his followers and disciples were like, this is it. Thousands of people. And Jesus is like, "Mm, let's go to the other side of the lake. What a bummer if you're trying to follow this guy. And so he's like, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. All metrics are starting to look like success, but he's going to go to the other side of the lake. And it's nighttime. It says that that it's starting to become night, and so he's wanting to go to the other side of the lake. They're tired from a day of of preaching. He wants to go at night, and these are seasoned fishermen that he's with, and so they can tell that a storm is coming. And so Jesus leaves the crowds, all of the influence, goes in the middle of the night across the lake in the midst of a storm, and not only is he just going across the lake, he's going to the wrong side of the lake, right? It's like like moving from here to Arizona, right? Right? Just kidding, if you're from Arizona, it's good for some people. 
right? So he leaves and he goes to the wrong side of the track, right? He's going to the wrong side of the hood. Jesus goes to the wrong place. And we know because as they pull up on the other side of the lake, there's a bunch of pig. And that's not a good thing. That's not kosher for a good Jewish boy. And so these good Jewish boys show up in the wrong hood. And they're like, I'm not supposed to be here. Jesus is taking them on a field trip in the wrong place. And they show up, and then it's a cemetery, a Gentile cemetery, which is pigs, unclean. Cemetery, unclean. Gentile territory, unclean. And out of the cemetery, they hear a blood-curdling yell, which no one wants to hear ever. I don't want to hear it on the streets of Encinitas, but you don't want to hear in a cemetery. And not a Gentile cemetery. And so they hear this blood-curdling cry coming out. And it's this person who comes running up, and this person is cut up. This person is demon-possessed. This person is scary and run, and he's naked. Don't forget that part. So you got this naked guy who's just running at them, and this is a real scene. Like sometimes we can read this story and we're like, man, that's crazy. But this is a real, this is real people. So if, just think about it for a moment. If you're the disciples and you're in that scene, like actually picture it. Don't picture it too much because there's a naked guy in the scene. Block that part out. Right? But, but picture this scene. What are you going to do if you're the disciples? Like, I'm fleeing back to the boat, or I'm jumping in the water. I'm swimming. I don't care. I'm getting out of there. And yet, in the midst of this place, you see Jesus is unmoved. He's non-anxious. He is present, and he stands there, unmoved, and he's looking at the guy. And this person just comes up to him and says, what do you want to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And you can imagine as disciples then, they're like, Jesus, you know naked guy? When did you guys hang out? Like, how do you know each other? Right? They would have been freaking out. And the story continues, the, the demon-possessed man begs Jesus, hey, don't, don't send us away from the region, but send us into the pigs. And it's a weird story, and Jesus sends them into the pigs, and, and the pigs run down the hill, and they jump into the water, and then you just have bobbing, soggy bacon just floating in the water. And it, it's, just, it's just this really weird story. All the people from the town hear about it, and they're upset that their bacon's dead. And so they're like, what are we going to do? And so they ask Jesus to leave. Verse 15. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion, the demons, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And I love this story because he was sitting there at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. You've got to love this. Because we know that obviously Jesus had the, the, the ability and the power to deliver the man. But somewhere in the midst of delivering the man, he gave the guy clothes. I don't know where he got the clothes. Like, he was probably, hey, Peter, dude, take your clothes. Give the guy the clothes, Peter. Like, I don't know what he did to give this guy clothes, but I love the fact, you can't get past this, that Jesus gave the person dignity in body and spirit. Because we are holistic human beings. He didn't just set the man free spiritually. He also gave him dignity and worth and clothed him. This is who Jesus is. Right, the scene itself, I mean, this, this guy is the, the furthest away from hope. He's in the darkest place that you could even imagine. I mean, think of the darkest situation in your life. Think of the darkest situations in the world, and this person's living it. He's cast out from society. His friends and family chained him up just to try to lock him down. He, he's cutting himself with rocks. He's living in the graves with dead people. I mean, he is in the darkest place, furthest thing from hope, and Jesus comes to him. 
And so the earliest Christians huddled around a lamp reading this in the darkest situation that they're in would have looked at this and said, Jesus comes to him? It means Jesus can come to me. And whatever situation you're in, Jesus can come to you. And this is the beauty of what the kingdom is like. And so they're asking the question, is the kingdom worth it? And then they read these stories about these parables, about this kingdom that's coming like a seed that must die, but it will grow. And they see Jesus go to a place of death and show life. And they're filled with hope. Jesus walks right into the middle of that dark situation. He says, I am here. He restored the man, his dignity, and he restored the man to community. Because the guy asked him, he's like, hey, Jesus, let me go back with you. And he says, no, no, no. Go back to your hometown. Angel, I can invite you up. Mark 5, 19 through 20. Jesus says to the, de- uh, the old demon-possessed man, he says, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. And then Jesus got in the boat and returned home. So Jesus literally went through the storm in the middle of the night, through the chaos, to the demon-possessed man and then left. Meaning he went on this entire journey, took his disciples to the wrong side of the track for one person in a dark place. We can't miss that. This is what Mark is trying to get us get at. He's trying to get the kingdom is like a seed that dies and then grows. The kingdom is like our Savior who travels through anything, through any darkness, through any situation to go after the one. Jesus pursues the one in the darkness because he hears our cry. He hears us. He sees us where we are. And then he gave the man a story. I love that. He then said, go and tell everybody about how much God has done for you. He gave the man a story. He gave the man dignity. He clothed the man. And so Jesus did this for this man. He did this for the people in the catacombs in Rome, and he will do this for you. Don't you believe he'll do this for you? Philippians 2.8 says that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. He showed up for the man on the wrong side of the lake. He showed up for the Christians huddled in the catacombs. He shows up for you. He steps into your stuff. He steps into the mess. He steps into the brokenness and your hopeless situation. And he says, I have come to restore what's broken. This is what the kingdom of God is like. See, sometimes we feel like God is far away. And I know personally, I felt that. I've felt like God is far away, but I don't know how to tell you with more strength that God could never be more near to you right now. And I know sometimes it feels like God is silent, and I don't know why he's always, why he feels silent sometimes. But he's with you. I mean, that's the essence of Jesus. That's the definition of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. God crossed heaven and earth to be with you. He crossed the stormy lake in the middle of the night to be with you. The disciples who experienced this firsthand, the Christians who are in the catacombs to you right now, Jesus wants to say, would you receive from me? And so that's just the invitation. The kingdom of God is like a seed that dies and grows. The kingdom of God is like Jesus who then proves it. 
I am going to be the seed that's going to die and give life. I'm going to go to the darkest places and I'm going to die and give life. And so would you receive from Jesus? Would you guys mind closing your eyes as we just pray and invite the Holy Spirit just to take to take this seed and to plant it into the good soil of our hearts. And so Jesus, we know that you've done it before. We see it in this story. We see how you've gone the distance, how you heard the cry and how you showed up. But God, I know that that's, that's not just a story that we read say cool, and then keep going, but that's the reality. You show us your character. God, we know from church history that you did that for those who originally read this gospel. And I know personally in my own life, and I know testimonies of friends and family and people in this room who have experienced you showing up in their dark situations. And God, we know that your kingdom doesn't look like how we had expected that it doesn't always mean that you're going to quickly remove us from a situation. It doesn't mean that you're going to give us just a freedom from this necessarily like painful thing right now. But God, we know that you're near to us. You're near to the brokenhearted. That you love us in our pain and you show up and that you're there. And so God, I pray that we would just receive that seed of hope this morning. So God, I pray for anybody in here this morning who's experiencing distance, maybe silence from you, maybe doubt that they're wrestling with or they find themselves just in a dark place. Jesus, draw near. And then God, in the same way that we receive from you, you ask us to be like you. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear the cries of people around us. In the same way that you travel the distance to love someone, that you would open our ears to hear the cry of someone else and you would send us to love like you've loved. And God, that's how the gospel seed spreads. That's how your love and the kingdom spreads is because we just continue to be like you. And so God, would you send us, give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen, amen. Awesome. <clears throat> well, happy Father's Day, everybody. Uh, if you're not a father, happy day. Um, guys, grab some donuts on the way out. We love you. So grateful to be part of this community. Have a blessed day. Peace. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.